In the rest of chapter 9, going to chapter 10, Yahweh returns to the present time. So he was talking about the future and what Yahweh would do, and now he returns to the present time and calls his people to repent and gets angry at them that they're not repenting. Then in chapter 10, Yahweh condemns Assyria, and he judges them for their evil, and basically is making the point that not only will Judah be punished in the coming Babylonian army, but also Assyria will be punished in the coming Babylonian army. Now, Babylon hasn't been specifically mentioned by name yet, only as the army from the north or the army from the east. But in hindsight, we know who this is as we learn about it. So in chapter 11, verse 1 through 9, we get to another messianic prophecy. And this is also a prediction fulfillment prophecy talking about what's going to happen in the future. So chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will grow out of Jesse's rootstock. A bud will sprout from its roots. Now, this is the first time we've seen the language, a shoot growing out of a tree stump. Now, the imagery here is, I already kind of mentioned this, but Israel and other nations are often referred to as trees. And the three trees, kind of tree, on the third one, they're usually typically used to portray Israel symbolically is the fig tree, the olive tree, and then the grapevine, which is not technically a tree, but it's a plant with multiple branches. These three things are usually used to portray Israel symbolically. And most likely the tree that is being used here is an olive tree. God often refers to nations, when we get to the book of Daniel, we'll see Nebuchadnezzar and his empire associated with a tree. And he often uses trees to symbolize this because of their growth, their foliage, and uh, the fact that people can rest under them and birds can rest in them. But when he judges them, he often describes them being cut down, being cut down. And that is an, an imagery that is often used to describe judgment on them. Now, with the olive tree, what is unique and interesting about the olive tree, technically, maybe not technically, depending on how you really want to look at this as a botanist, but the olive tree lives forever and never dies. And one of the reasons that we know that an olive tree can live up to 2,000 years, that just that one tree with its trunk and its branches. And when that tree trunk and its branches begin to die after about 2,000 years, then what begins to happen is one of its roots actually begins to start growing out from underneath the ground and upwards. And a new shoot begins to grow up out of the trunk, so to speak. But not like cut the trunk down in the middle of the cutoff place, a shoot begins to grow up. That's how we always draw it in Sunday school class. But a shoot coming out of the bottom of the trunk, which we would know as a root. And that root begins to grow up. And as it begins to grow up out of the ground, the tree trunk begins to die, and the new shoot from the root system begins to grow up and start growing into another really big olive tree. Now, olive trees are like, you can't, spreading my arms out as wide as I can doesn't even get my arms around them, the base of them. So they're very wide in their girth, and they can last forever unless you cut them down. And if it has a really healthy root system, cutting it down doesn't stop it 
from what I've heard, you've got to like, it's like vines in America and ivy. Like you can fight it till the day you die and it won't go away. <laughs> so, but not very many people actually want to fight an olive tree and kill them because they're, they're a source of fruit and production, unlike vines. This is probably the imagery that is being portrayed here as a new shoot. Like it's been cut down, one would think it's dead, but there's a sense of resurrection that is happening here a sense of new life that's coming out of the death that's happening here. And that's the picture that's being portrayed. Now, what's interesting is God talks about cutting down Israel multiple times. And even Jesus talks about cutting it down. We talked about John the baptizer talks about cutting it down. And this imagery, cutting it down, happens a lot. And oftentimes he even talks about burning it. And none of that stops it. None of that stops it. What's interesting is when we get to Babylon in the book of Daniel... God describes bronzing the trunk of Babylon. And by bronzing the trunk that has been cut down after Babylon's judgment, nothing can grow through metal. And the idea is Babylon will never come back. And it hasn't. never did come back. And so, but he never describes Israel in that way. He never describes Israel in that way in any kind of way. So this shoot is the idea of the Davidic line seems like it's been cut down, Jehoiachin, the second to last king, is taken off into exile and put into prison in 605. And then Zedekiah, the last king of the Davidic line, is actually blinded and dies in prison in 586. But then remember the end of Book of Kings, Jehoiachin is brought out of prison under the next king, Mordecai, the Babylonian king. And he sits him at the banquet table and treats him like an equal king for the rest of his life. And there's this little hint that God is not done with the Davidic line. And he has honored his promises and will keep them going. And so Isaiah portrays it as a shoot in the tree trunk. Kings portrays it as the king being brought out of prison, set at the banquet table. And, of course, we know in hindsight it's Jesus Christ being born in Bethlehem. That is the shoot that has regrown even after thousands of years, well, not thousands, hundreds of years of being dead and cut down. The shoot of Jesse. The Davidic king that will come one day is often referred to as the Davidic king or one from the Davidic line, but a lot of times it's just called David. He's just called David, like in this kind of, in a sense, the David, even though we know that's not grammatically correct at this point. But the, the specific David, as if the David is going to be resurrected in a second coming kind of an idea. Now, we all know that that's not the idea that the gospel writers, or, or sorry, the prophets or trying to portray. But here what's interesting is that he's referred to out of Jesse's root and rather than David. And what might be here is portraying the idea, no scholar really knows why it's referred to Jesse here and everywhere else it's David or the Davidic line. But some scholars are taking the guess that it might be to paint the picture that we're not going to get a, a morally failed David again who will screw everything up again. And that this is going to be a new kind of a David that will come out of Jesse. But this is what he's promising. The Davidic king will come back one day. Verse 2. And Yahweh's spirit will rest on him, and a spirit that gives extraordinary wisdom. We all know that David didn't really have extraordinary wisdom. A spirit that provides the ability to execute plans. A spirit that produces absolute loyalty to Yahweh. This is someone who will execute the plans of Yahweh faithfully. 
and he will be so faithful to executing the plans that he will actually create loyalty among his followers to Yahweh. Loyalty that we've never seen. I remember Amos and Hosea and Micah have already made it very clear, like there's a day coming where you actually will be loyal, unlike everything that you've already done so far. He will take delight in obeying Yahweh. He will not judge by mere appearances or make decisions on the basis of hearsay. He will treat the poor fairly, and he will make righteous decisions for the downtrodden of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. These are those words. Will bring down wicked people in order to be executed. Justice will be like the belt around his waist. Integrity will be like a belt around his hips. A wolf will reside with a lamb, and a leopard will lie down with a young goat, and the ox and a young lion will graze together as small children leads them along. A cow and a bear will graze together, their young will lie down together, and a lion will, like an ox, will eat straw. A baby will play over the hole of a snake and over the nest of a serpent, and an infant will put his hand in, and they will no longer injure or destroy on my entire royal mountain, for there will be universal submission to Yahweh's sovereignty, just as the waters completely cover the sea. He described this Davidic king. Now remember Amos, the heart of Amos, after condemning them for their idolatry and social injustice, basically calls Israel to true worship. And the true worship is to let justice, actively stopping social injustice that you see around you, and actively meeting the needs of people who are in need around you, and let righteousness, living rightly with other people, flow out of you like a continuous river. And as God constantly condemns them for their lack of social justice and idolatry, he constantly brings back this theme of this Davidic king will actually have justice and righteousness flowing out of him continuously. And rather than using the flowing river sense, this writer talks about it being his clothes. And the belt around his waist is justice and integrity and righteousness. And the ancient world, the belt is what held everything together. I mean, a little bit so today, but even everything. And that's where you put your tools. So think of like Batman. Okay, like that's a key essential. Like without that, Batman's nothing. It's that a kind of an idea, and that is what's going to bind him together. And so this will be a Davidic king unlike any ruler we've ever seen. We have never, ever in the history of mankind had a ruler that has had justice and righteousness constantly flowing out of him. And this is like fantasy. <laughs> like, yeah, right, whatever, God. Like, we've been waiting for that one. And yet that is what is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is what is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's why these words truth and justice and righteousness are used so often of Jesus in the Gospels and in the epistles to connect you to what the prophets have been saying here. And what's amazing is that notice that it doesn't say the Davidic king will come and, oh, by the way, people will be faithful and the animal world and humans will live in peace. It says that he will inspire, he will cause people to be faithful. It's not that he will rule and God will change people. There's almost this connection that he will cause the change. He will create loyalty. He will make this happen. And people will be extremely loyal to Yahweh as a result of this. But then he also paints a picture. Now, we often attach ourselves to the lion and the lamb laying peacefully next to each other. But notice how it paints this picture even deeper. 
It talks about farm animals being with wild animals. It talks about little children reaching into snake holes and not being bit. It's not just a lion and a lamb idea. It's a universal cosmic change in the nature of the animal world and in human nature. That there is peace, and this is so key. God is not just interested in the redemption of humans. He's the interest in the redemption of all of creation and the animal world. The first command to Adam and Eve was to rule and subdue creation, take care of it. And there's an implication that this Davidic king will not only redeem humans, make them loyal, but he will also change creation back to what it was in the garden. There will be peace. He will rule and subdue and take care of creation, and he will mediate in this kind of a way. This is a result of him coming. This is a result of his coming. Now, obvious, this is second coming. Because even with the Holy Spirit, and even with us being sanctified, we are not 100% loyal to Yahweh in every moment of our lives. And we have not seen a cosmic change in the nature of creation, animals, and humans as we interact with each other. Even believers are not always faithful to creation in the way that we take care of it. And so this is that second coming. Now, hopefully you're beginning to realize that what's interesting is we often are very hard on the Jewish people for missing Jesus. Very hard on the Jewish people for missing who Jesus was. But I hope you're going to be realized as we go through these prophecies, the first and second coming look very much like the exact same event. When you're reading these prophecies, there's this idea of forgiveness of sins and atonement wrapped up with absolute political domination over the entire world and bringing world peace and a Davidic king all put together. And, and when Jesus comes, and he's, and you know, I hope you realize too, as we keep going, the majority of the prophecies are about the domination over the nations, the end of all evil the bringing into all sin, everyone living in peace on this cosmic mountain where everybody's faithful. There's only a few places where we get forgiveness of sins and only one passage that really talks about him dying. When Jesus comes along and he's not meeting that picture, I mean, he was supposed to be kicking butt and he was supposed to be dominating Rome. And that's why Peter showed up with a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like, this is why they're like, Jesus, you say you've read the prophets, but I don't think you have, okay? Because you're not looking like this. And to their credit, yeah, they were kind of justified in saying things like that. And you and I would do the same thing. If we're called to test the spirits and test God and all this kind of stuff, and they're not matching up with prophecy, we would be really struggling with that. That's why Jesus says, let him who has eyes see, let him who has ears hear, and only those who are led by the Spirit correctly see what God is doing here. And too often we're just being led by our interpretation. And in this is somewhat of a correct interpretation, just great distance between the two events. Don't be too harsh on the Jews for this. And yes, there's a lot of Jews today, you'd be like, yeah, okay, but in hindsight, shouldn't you get this already? But at the same time, like many of them have been so hurt 
and feels so wronged by the world and even God and that so many bad things have happened to them, especially the genocide, that many of them don't go to scripture for hope anymore and really understand the prophecies because they really feel wrong and abandoned by God. And though we would, it's easy to say that's not right, but remember the Psalms is full of people feeling like they've been abandoned by God. We have felt like we've been abandoned God at different times in our life. And that's just on an individualistic level. Imagine corporately as a nation, horrible things happening to you over and over and over again. And if there's one people group that the world's been mostly against unanimously over and over throughout history, it's been the Jewish people. And so they have every right to feel like God has abandoned them. They're not right. They will be held accountable for that. But their emotions are understandable. Okay? You may not agree, but you can at least sympathize. This is not easy to figure out in pre-sight as you're trying to see it coming. I mean, remember it said in First Peter, the prophets longed to understand and could not figure out the time or the meaning or the nature of Christ's coming. And even the disciples who were standing next to him were saying stupid things all the time. And so many times in John's gospel, it says they did not realize until later. They did not realize until later. They did not realize until later. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And if you feel like your scriptures are not there for you and you're not really as a people group diving into them, then no wonder they don't see the connections even now. Especially when the Christian church hasn't had a good history of treating the Jewish people well. This is not easy stuff. If you throw yourself back into that world and completely eliminate the gospels from your understanding and the epistles. Because even after the gospels, a lot of people didn't get it. And Paul is even working a lot of his theology out as he's writing his letters and trying to understand this stuff. So a lot of this first and second coming sounds like it's very much wrapped up within each other. Even when the, the angels announce the coming of Jesus, it sounds like second coming stuff in the, the Gospel of Luke. It sounds like second coming. But this is what he's calling them to. He is basically predicting a day where all evil all conflicts, all dystopia are basically resolved and eliminated. Chapter 11, verse 10. At that time, a root from Jesse will stand like a signal flag for the nations. Nations will look to him for guidance, and his residence will be majestic. At that time, the sovereign master will again lift up his hand to reclaim the remnant of his people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Alam, Shinar, Hamath, and the seacoast. Now, that's the other thing. It sounds like the Davidic king will come, and then the people will be called back from the nations, chronologically speaking. But notice that this root will not just be a new tree growing. This new root will be so drastically different. It will be like a signal flag. Or for us, a modern-day language would be, it would be like a flare or a big neon sign flashing in the middle of the darkness saying, I am unique and different and unlike anything you've seen. I'm not just any shoot of Jesse. I am the shoot of Jesse. And they, all the world will be looking to him for guidance. Verse 12, he will lift a signal flag for the nations and he will gather Israel's dispersed people and assemble Judah's scattered people from the four corners of the earth. Ephraim, another name for Israel in the north, jealousy will end and Judah's hostility will be eliminated. Ephraim will no longer be jealous of Judah and Judah will no longer be hostile towards Ephraim. 
He will bring the two kingdoms together. The Jewish people will be united for the first time ever. Now you remember, the Jewish people have never been united. And that's not a knock against the Jewish people because no nation has ever been completely united. I mean, hello, America. But from the very moment they came out of the wilderness, even Aaron's own cousins were trying to take him down. And then Miriam, Moses' own sister, was trying to take him down. And there's never been unity. And yet, with two politically powerful entities, there will be unity among them. And they will swoop down on the Philistine hills to the west, and together they will loot the people of the east. And they will take over Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be their subjects. And Yahweh will divide the gulf of Egyptian sea. And he will wave his hand over the Euphrates River and send a strong wind. And he will turn it into a seven dried up he will turn it into seven dried up streams and enable them to walk across in their sandals. He's reimagining a new exodus. Uh, from all their evil, from all their oppressors, they're going to drive them down and they're going to walk away from them through dried riverbeds. There will be a highway leading out of Assyria for the remnant of his people, just as there for Israel. When they went up from the land of Egypt, Assyria will be the new exodus. And I will pave a flat, easy walking highway for the exiles to get out of there. Basically, there will be no obstacles for you being freed from your oppression. At that time, you will say, I praise you, O Yahweh. For even though you were angry with me and your anger subsided and you consoled me, look, God is my deliverer. I will trust in him and not fear. For Yahweh gives me strength and protects me. He has become my deliverer. Joyfully, you will draw water from the springs of deliverance. And at that time, you will say, praise Yahweh. Ask him for help. Publicize his mighty acts among the nations. Make it known that he is unique. Sing to Yahweh, for he has done a magnificent thing. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and shout for joy. O citizens of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel acts mightily among you. And unlike your first exodus, where you began to grumble two days later, you're going to actually praise me to all the nations for what I have done. And the spirit of every movie rebooting the 80s, this is like a reboot of the Exodus, except it's going to be done right this time. Not that God failed to do it the first time, but Israel's going to do it right this time. They're going to respond in a right way this time. 